the enormous appeal of Mahler's music these days suggests that people seek out his music in a way which doesn't apply to other composers. These statistics speak for themselves. A recent survey has turned up 203 recordings of his first symphony, 136 of his second, and 177 of his fifth. What really interests me is why it took so many decades for these symphonies to find their rightful place in the concert hall and to win over audiences right across the world. Let's go back to that concept of the symphony being like a world embracing everything and examine mankind's most fundamental concern of all, the search for spirituality. It's a subject that the music critic Harold Schoenberg deals with in his book The Lives of the Great Composers. Mahler devotees, he says, see in his music a mystical description of nature and a search for the divine. Mahler, he says, is obsessed with the meaning of life and suffers the martyrdom and struggle of the search. The music is characterised by soul states, inner crises, ecstasy and transfiguration. Not everyone's cup of tea. Harold Schoenberg describes himself as one of those who finds the obsession in the music too unbalanced and neurotic, sometimes banal or hysterical. And I have to say, I sometimes agree with him. But those who flock to Mahler's concerts aren't in search of rational, well-ordered thought. They're after an artistic experience which will take them to a heightened level of perception. And crucially, the search for spirituality in Mahler's music is just as topical for a 21st century postmodern audience as it was in Mahler's Vienna at the turn of the 20th century, where the belief in conventional religion and traditional social values was already on the wane. And yet Mahler chose the four-movement symphony, essentially an 18th century construct, as his medium to pose some of the biggest philosophical questions of all, especially the search for a god. Form and balance within a multi-movement framework is what a symphony is all about. But Mahler stretched it to the limit. In his symphonies, he threw in all sorts of non-musical elements, from the anti-Christian texts of Nietzsche to the Christian invocations of the delights of heaven. The final movement of his third symphony has the title What Love Tells Me, but Mahler said it could also be called What God Tells Me. The sense of spiritual searching is particularly poignant in someone from a Jewish background who converted to Catholicism. So the great religious questions come into play in Mahler's symphonies, but less lofty aspects of the world are embraced as well. Sounds which are on the face of it brash, coarse or mundane, what you might call the base metal of musical materials. Popular music is everywhere in Mahler from rousing military fanfares to poignant nursery rhymes, and they form an essential part of the fabric of every single one of his symphonies. Often, though, these snippets of popular music are used as emblematic symbols of something else, such as painful memories in Mahler's unhappy childhood. Once, apparently, after a beating from his father, Mahler ran into the street, where he came across a military band playing rousing fanfares, forging a link in his mind between high drama and the mundanity of public music ever since. The importance of nature in his music stems from another incident with his father. Once, when the two of them were out walking, his father remembered he had to finish some task or other at home. He'd left the young Gustav sitting on a log, promising to return to him, but then he forgot. 
Four hours later, he returned, finding Mahler absolutely transfixed by the sounds and the sheer beauty of nature. An experience that the composer later captured in music like this, the spacious opening of his symphony number one. After Mahler died in 1911, there was a posthumous flowering of interest in his music, but it was nipped in the bud. Two gifted conductors who had met and worked with Mahler were the Dutchman Willem Mengelberg and Bruno Walter, who was Mahler's assistant at the court opera in Vienna. Their attempts to promote Mahler's music went down badly with the anti-Semitic right, which had derided Mahler's music for its Yiddish accent right from day one. After the Nazis came to power in 1933, first Germany, then Austria and occupied Europe were turned into Mahler-free zones. Across the Atlantic, though, another composer who had heard Mahler's music in Berlin in the 20s was free to speak his mind. Aaron Copeland wrote this pithy summary of Mahler's achievement in his book Our New Music of 1941. He was by nature a profoundly childlike artist, Copeland wrote, yet heir to all the problematic complexities of the modern world. Picking up the baton of Copeland's enthusiasm was one of his pupils, who was to become the mid-20th century's most persuasive Mahler advocate of all, Leonard Bernstein. He had so much in common with Mahler as a man and as a musician, of Jewish heritage and as a passionate, committed and uncompromising musician who divided his time between composing and conducting, Bernstein knew just as Mahler did how painful it was to suffer from a clash of creative priorities. And as someone who created rather than just interpreted, Bernstein also understood that it often takes time for new art to be accepted and understood. Taking Mahler's own remark about his music, My Time Will Come, as the title for an important essay he wrote for High Fidelity magazine, published in 1967. Because for Bernstein in the 1960s, that time had well and truly arrived. The early decades of the 20th century had seen a horrifying succession of tragedies. Two world wars, the Holocaust, the Cuban Missile Crisis, the assassination of JFK. He believed that it was thanks to this sense that the world was spinning out of control that Mahler's music could be fully understood for the first time. Another of Bernstein's great skills is that he was an exceptional communicator of the power and the meaning of Western classical music. Here's how he described how Mahler galvanised its traditions and procedures. He took all the basic elements of German music, including the clichés, and drove them to their ultimate limits. 
he turned rests into shuddering silences, upbeats into volcanic preparations for a death blow. Mahler's marches are like heart attacks, his chorales like all Christendom gone mad. Mahler, Bernstein wrote, is all German music multiplied by N. In one of his famous Northern lectures for Harvard University, Bernstein said that the real reason for the 50 years of neglect that Mahler's music suffered after his death was not the usual excuses we always hear, that the music is too long, too difficult, too bombastic. It was simply too true, he explained, telling something too dreadful to hear. The awful truth, Bernstein said, was the premonition of three kinds of death. Mahler's own death, the death of tonality, and the death of our society, of our Faustian culture. A few years later, Mahler's music reached another huge audience. When the adagiato from his Symphony No. 5 was used in Lucchino Visconti's famous film version of Death in Venice. Thomas Mann, the author of the original novella, had taken some of the characteristics of his protagonist Gustav Aschenbach from the composer, including his first name. But Visconti went one stage further in his cinematic version, making a link between Aschenbach the gay protagonist, and Mahler supposedly composing his third symphony while ogling a boy on the beach, something that left a leading Mahler biographer distinctly unimpressed. Henri-Louis de Lagrange, who has spent four decades working on his mammoth Mahler biography, says it shows a misunderstanding not only of the nature of Mahler's sexual desires, but also of the act of musical creation. Ken Russell's 1974 biographical film Mahler fares little better. Delagrange has poured scorn on what he calls its endless caricature in the schematized world of the cartoon film. So finally, let's head back to the concert hall, the rightful place, you might say, for Mahler's symphonies. I don't want to put you off, but this is challenging music to listen to, which makes considerable demands on its listeners. Mahler's symphonic thought processes are long, involved, intense and complex. And let's spare a thought for the poor promoters as well. Putting on a performance of Mahler's Eighth, the Symphony of a Thousand, doesn't come cheap. And yet, despite those obvious hurdles, Mahler's long and complex symphonic canvases are becoming more and more popular with the public. But hold on. Aren't we supposed to be living in an age of the short attention span where culture has been irrevocably dumbed down and no one can concentrate for more than five minutes? Yes, I thought so too. There's a very interesting paradox at work here. <laughs> 